Well, it is good to be with you on Resurrection Sunday. If you have your Bibles, take and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 1. The book of Acts chapter 1, and we'll flip through a couple of verses there. Can we go get a little more on the house lights? People slipping in, making sure they see where the holes are this morning, guys. All right, there we go. All right, Acts chapter 1. You know, this Resurrection Sunday morning, we are going to look at and we are going to celebrate life. Uh, I'm so thankful for Grant and, and the, the time they put in that today is an exciting day, that we celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive. That's reason for celebration on this incredibly special day, what some have called the greatest day in history, the day that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. And yes, he suffered terribly. And yes, he didn't deserve that suffering. And yes, he died a horrible death. But life not death, is what brings us joy and hope and such a sense of expectancy on this Resurrection Sunday morning. And as we celebrate life, we also acknowledge another undeniable component in the resurrection story, and that is the power of God, the power of God displayed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, life is the greatest demonstration of God's power in the entire world. Bible. And I read where a group of scientists had gotten so confident in their abilities to create human life that they, they challenged God one day to a creation contest. They came and said, God, we want to show you that we now can create human life. And, and God, once we do, uh, we want you to recognize and understand that we appreciate all that you've done up to this point, but we'll be able to take it from here, okay? So we're going to show you we can create human life, and then we won't need you any longer. And oddly enough, God agreed to their terms. And so these scientists were giddy with excitement, and one of them leaned down and scooped up a big handful of dirt, and they turned to walk away and, and go begin their experiment. Before they could get more than a few steps away, God's voice boomed down from heaven and said, no, 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 no. If you guys are going to do this, you're going to do it old school like I did. You go make your own dirt to start with. <laughs> As we think about God's power to give life. I'm not going to preach this morning on, on evolution versus creationism, but you see God's power is central in that discussion because we ask the question, how did life begin? And if, and if you take a big bang theory angle to that, then you've got to ask your question, what caused, at what point, how did that which was inanimate, non-living become alive, fully functioning, able to sustain life on itself? And we talk about man being able to create life because we can now do in vitro fertilization. But you see that that's not phrasing that situation correctly. We're not creating life. We're taking a living cell, uniting it with another living cell, creating a new living cell or an embryo that begins to live there. So we're actually just continuing life. We're not taking inanimate object, putting it together with inanimate object, and boom, all of a sudden there's something that's alive. We just continue the price of life that started somewhere, somehow, at some point. So we have to grapple with this question, how did life begin? And if you haven't seen the movie Expelled uh, by Ben Stein, uh, talking about uh, the, the, the discussion of uh, creation and intelligent design and how uh, that is being uh, moved out of a lot of classrooms and a lot of discussion in modern-day America, I would encourage you to take some time and watch that movie just to be able to think about uh, some of the key issues related to this discussion. But in that movie, Ben Stein interviews Richard Dawkins. 
and he is a leading secular atheistic expert on evolutionary biology. And I want to show about a 50-second clip here to hear some of his thoughts on one possibility as to how life originated on our planet. And as you watch this, remember, this is one of the world's foremost knowledgeable experts as he describes a possibility for how life came to start on our planet. So you guys go ahead and roll the clip here. What do you think is the possibility that there, that intelligent design might turn out to be uh, the answer to some issues in uh, genetics or in, well, in evolution? It could come about in the following way. It could be that... Uh, at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization e evolved by probably some kind of Darwinian means to a very, very high level of technology and designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this, this planet. Um, now, th that is a possibility and an intriguing possibility. Mm -hmm. And I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that if you look at the, um, at the detail details of biochemistry, molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of designer. Now, I think that's interesting that somewhere in the universe, life evolved to a point that that which was living came and seeded, he said, planted life on our planet, which opens a whole nother chapter or takes us back to the beginning of this chapter. And well, where did that life come from? How did it get started? How did it get originated? So you got to take a leap of faith somewhere. So it's some other technology intelligent group that came and seeded life here or maybe just to look to God who created and started life but at the end of that segment did you hear what he said he said there just may be just may be somewhere uh, on a biological molecular level a signature he said did you hear that a signature of a designer I want you to hold on to that thought for a few minutes we'll come back to that shortly but what I want us to think on this Resurrection Sunday and to focus in on is the power of God, which started life and how it displayed its greatest work, God's power's greatest work through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, demonstrating the power of life over death. God demonstrating the power of life over death, that death isn't the end. There is more to come, more to look forward to after our time on this earth is done. So what I want to do is I want to use a term from the world of power and electricity just to show us three traits, three characteristics of God's power this morning. How many of you have ever heard the term amp? You've heard of an amp and know a little bit what I'm talking about there. I'm not speaking of the energy drink, okay? Uh, although its name is actually taken from this idea of, of power and of energy. You know, you drink an amp and then you get all amped up and you have the energy and the power to overcome your weariness and your fatigue and do what you need to do. Now, you corrode your digestive system, your liver, your heart, and your nervous system to do it. But, hey, you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed as you go about your business, right? Well, the kind of amp I'm talking about is actually a measurement of the strength of an electrical current or power or electricity, if we put it in simple terms. As I started to study, I, I took my, my phone and I pulled up the, uh, the dictionary app I have and I type in the word amp and I read this first definition. It's the base sports illustrated unit of electrical current. That's what SI is, right? The base sports illustrated unit of electrical current. Equivalent to one column per second, formally defined to be the constant current, which is maintained between those of, uh, two, of Newton per meter of length. Okay. 
Well, the second definition said this, the strength of an electrical current. So we'll go with that one, all right? The, the, the strength of, uh, that, that's on my level. So asking and thinking about power and amps and measuring it, how powerful is God? I mean, how do we put a mark? How do we put a measure on the power of God? And, and not to just think about measuring, but to ask, what does God's power look like in the lives of people? What does God's power do in our lives? I want us to look at three simple things in answer to those questions. First, we need to understand that God's power is available. God's power is available to us. You know, if we want to get power electricity in our home, uh, we go to the electric company, do we not? And we sign over a deposit and they come and they make sure the meter is working and it comes into our house and then they bill us for our usage and we have to pay our bill. If we don't pay our bill, what happens? They cut us off, all right? So, so we have to, to get power. We have to get electricity on their terms. Well, God's power is available to us, but you know what the Bible teaches? That we have to receive God's power on his terms. We've got to receive it on his terms, and his terms are that we can't have sin in our lives because if we come into God's presence, God is holy and righteous and pure. Coming into his presence with sin in our life, he has to punish. He has to pour out his wrath against that sin so we can't enter into God's presence. Receiving God's power on his terms means that we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and God punished our sin in Jesus, and then he traded Jesus' perfect righteousness and put it upon us. We come to God, we receive God's power on his terms. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this is after Jesus' resurrection. He's alive. He's seen the disciples. Paul tells us that 500 people, over 500, had seen Jesus since his resurrection. He's just about to ascend back into heaven and leave the disciples to do and accomplish the mission that he's called them to do. And he says this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this is how they are going to fulfill the mission. But you will receive power, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus promised this power in the form of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, that Holy Spirit falls. And that spirit, that, that power of God through the Holy Spirit began to work in the lives of the disciple. And as they preached the gospel and, and, and proclaimed God's word to others, other people began to receive the Holy Spirit. And they experienced the power of God as well. And we say, well, what did God's power do in the lives of the disciples? Well, well, a couple of things. One, it gave them strength when they faced persecution. And you know what? They did face persecution. But God's power through the Holy Spirit strengthened them to stand strong and be bold even in the face of that persecution. It gave them the ability to perform signs and wonders. The blind were made to see, the, the, the lame were made to walk, the deaf were made to hear. The Bible tells us that they used to bring the people who were sick with diseases and ailments, and they would lay them on the streets as Peter would, would walk down the streets, just hoping that Peter's shadow would fall on those who were sick so that they might be healed. That's the power of God that was taking place through the disciples. But it also gave them the power to be bold as they preached the gospel because not everyone received, not everyone wanted to hear the gospel. And so they, they, they rejected and they persecuted from them, but the, the power of God through the Holy Spirit continued to give them boldness as they proclaimed the gospel. 
So we say, well, well, how did they, how would we then experience God's power? How do we see God's power working in our life and through our life? Well, in the same two ways the Bible has always described that we see God's power. First, we see God's power through the gospel. We see God's power through the gospel. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for people to be saved. Remember that, that we receive Christ's righteousness, our sins are atoned for. It is the power of God for salvation to who? To everyone, Paul says, who believes There is nothing more wonderful and amazing than seeing the gospel work in a person's life. As you sit down and share the story of Christ, if you share God's love of how Christ came and died for people and watching the Holy Spirit in a supernatural way work in that person's heart and their spirit and draw them to Christ so that they say, I need that. I want that. How do I receive Christ? How do I receive this Holy Spirit into my life? It is all inspiring to see the Holy Spirit do that work and the power of God change a person and lead that person from death and separation from God into life and become a child of God. But we see God's power displayed a second way, and that's through his word. Through his word. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning, look at this, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I don't know about you guys, but there are times when I don't even know the own intention of why I'm doing something. You know, my wife before says, why did you do that? And I'm like, I don't know. I just did it. You know, I I don't even understand sometimes why I do the things I do or I don't do the things that I don't do. But God's word helps us weigh and evaluate our thoughts, our intentions, the desires of our hearts. And again, I have seen this work itself out over and over again in people's lives as we teach and as we preach and as we share God's word with other people. But here's the thing, to know and to experience God's power working through his word, you've got to get into God's word. You need to know what it says. You need to understand it and then apply it to your life. How many of you are, are manual readers? And by manual readers, I mean when you get a new device, a new appliance, how many of you sit and you read through the manual because you want to know what features, how to do stuff, and you want to know how to care for it? Any, any man, go ahead. You, you can be nerdy like me if you're a manual reader. All right, there's some manual readers. All right, how many of you are just open it and use it people? All right. How many of you open it and use it people have ever had somebody take your device or your appliance and do something and you go, I didn't know it would do that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My four-year-old sometimes will grab my my iPhone and do something like, Daniel, how did you do this? I can't get it fixed. Mike, will you come and fix my iPhone? I don't don't know how to undo it, you know. My four-year-old messed it up. You know, the same is true with God's word. I mean, if we don't open it and get into it, I mean, I I hope that I teach you and you learn from God's word. And I hope your Sunday school teachers and maybe your spouse, there are people that yes, we can learn from and, and we can help understand God's word, but God wants you to understand it. God wants you to know what he's saying to you. And as you read through scripture, the power of the Holy Spirit, man, stuff will leap off the page and it'll just speak to your heart and you'll go, 
God wrote that just for me. And you know what? God did write that just for you. He wanted you to see it and hear it and know it and then apply those things to your lives. And as you go through life and say, God, this is amazing. That you want me to do this? And as we begin to, to apply and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to do it. And we step out in faith and we begin to follow the teachings and the principles and the truths of God's word. We see his power grow stronger uh, and more prominent in our lives. And God does incredible things as he works through his word. So I encourage you, share the gospel to see God's power at work in your life. Get into God's word and experience his power so that you can see it released in dramatic ways and other people will begin to see that power in your life as well. But once we've received the power of God that's made available to us, the second thing we'll begin to know is that God's power motivates us. God's power motivates us. And let's face it, You all don't need me to tell you this. Motivation is sometimes the hardest part of a task, is it not? How many of you have ever woken up some morning and think, I don't even want to get out of bed. Can I make it go away? I just, you know, I I don't want to pull the covers back, put my feet on the floor. I don't want to go there today. On the flip side of that, have you ever had a restless, a sleepless night because you're so excited about something the next day, maybe a vacation, maybe a big hunting trip, maybe some special event? You're like, man, it's 2 o'clock. When's daylight going to get here? Man, it's 3 o'clock. I wish I could sleep a little bit longer. When is it ever going to start? Any of you do that? How many of your kids were up at like 5 this morning because it's Easter Sunday morning? I say, woo, it's Easter, you know. So we've had that anticipation. What's the difference? our motivation, what we hope, what we long for in the course of that next day. And every person is motivated differently. I read about a man, he was a very mild-mannered man, so mild-mannered that everyone in his life just walked all over him, his wife, his co-workers, his boss. I mean, everybody that he met in life, he he was kind of just like a doormat, you know, just never stood up for himself. And one day he decided he had had it up to here. He was fed up with people walking on him, and he signed up for a class on personal assertiveness. And he attended this class on how to be more, more assertive, and, man, he was motivated when that class was over. He was ready to, to go home and, and show his wife and go to work the next day and show everybody how he was no longer going to be a doormat for people just to walk on and to wipe their feet. And so all the way home, feeling so empowered, he rehearsed over and over again exactly how and what he was going to say to his wife when he got home to demonstrate his newfound assertiveness. And he busted through that front door, and as soon as he saw his wife, he said in his most uh, stern, bold voice, I want you to know that I am the man of this house, and my word is law. You are going to fix me my favorite dinner. And after dinner, I'm going to get a delicious dessert that you've prepared for me. And when I have finished eating, you're going to go draw me a hot bath so that I can relax. And after that hot bath, guess who is going to dress me and comb my hair? And without batting an eye, his wife looked at him and said, The funeral home director? Getting motivated can be tough. Motivation is hard. But, you know, it's even harder to get motivated for a difficult or a painful task. 
I mean, how do you get yourself motivated enough to, to do something that, 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 that could get you thrown into prison? Or what kind of pep talk would you need in order to get you prepared for a beating to be stoned the old-fashioned kind with like the hard rocks sort of stoned to be flogged with a whip or to die a horrible death like being sawn in two pulled apart by horses beheaded or even crucified possibly even upside down what would motivate you to subject yourself to any kind of activity that would cause those repercussions in your life. But you see, that's what happened to Jesus. And that's what happened to his disciples and to his followers for centuries after. What would motivate people to submit themselves to such horrific situations and punishment? It's the power of God. The power of God is the only thing that could motivate people to do things like that. And they do it because they understand that God's power as displayed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. We look at everything differently because of the resurrection. In John chapter 11, Jesus said, and this is, this is a phrase I think that changes everything in our minds when we begin to understand it. He says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, now listen to this, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. Now think, reflect, and chew on those words for just a minute. I'm going to say them again. Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. Now, was Jesus saying there that, that, that death doesn't occur when we believe in him? You know, in John 11, the disciples were around and they heard Jesus say these words. And I think in their minds, they thought they knew what Jesus was saying and they thought they, they understood what he was trying to communicate. But then Good Friday happened and Jesus died and they saw him and they knew he was dead. And Saturday was quiet. There, there was no activity, no, no anything other than the grief that they were experiencing, that this Jesus who talked about life and who had the power to heal so many people and who raised others from the dead, Jesus was now dead. He was gone. They couldn't listen to him anymore. They couldn't see him and hear his teaching. They, they couldn't touch him or be around him. He was dead. And they were processing all this, and they were grieving so deeply. But then they arrived at the tomb on Resurrection Sunday. And they heard the angel say these words, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you. Yeah, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And bam, their understanding of though he die, yet shall he live, came to life. They understood. Now they recognized what Jesus was saying. It took on a whole new meaning. And all of a sudden, they were filled with joy. They were filled with hope, and they were filled with expectancy at what had taken place. And then Jesus appeared to them. 
and they could see his resurrection body. They could hear his voice as he talked to them. He ate with them, and he walked with them along the road, and he invited Thomas, come, touch the wounds. Come and feel for yourself these wounds that are here. And they realized that what Jesus had said was true. He wasn't telling them that they wouldn't die because Jesus had suffered. He had been crucified. He died physically, but he resurrected from the dead to live forever in his new resurrection body. And he promised that whoever believed in him would have that same experience, physical death followed by a glorified, new, resurrected body that would live in his presence with him for all of eternity. And the disciples went, yes, now we get it. Now we understand. Now we don't fear anything. Because the Apostle Paul would later say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul said, you know, I'm going to live for Jesus. And if somebody kills me for for my faith in Jesus, so what? It's an upgrade for me. I, I get that new glorified body, the resurrection to live with Jesus forever. I am better off when I'm dead, after I'm dead, because of the hope in Jesus Christ, because of the power of life over death that's displayed through the resurrection. It changes everything. And the disciples understood this new reality. And then they remembered that Jesus gave them a mission. Go and take the gospel to every nation. People need to hear about this hope. They need to hear about my love. They need to hear and know that they can experience what you've experienced, my power working in your life. So go. And the disciples said, we're going to go. And you know what? If they persecute us, so what? If they kill us, so what? We will be with Jesus. And they were motivated to go and do what God had called them to do. And man, they did it. The book of Acts, I love reading these stories. Look at Acts chapter 4. We see the disciples' response to their persecution. In Acts 4, they were arrested and they were told to stop preaching. They were warned that things were going to get worse. It's going to be worse than just sitting in a prison for a couple of days, guys. It's going to be a lot more painful for you. And in Acts chapter 4, they were released. And verse 29 says, this is their prayer. And now, Lord, Acts chapter 4, verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They weren't about to be quiet. They weren't praying to be quiet. They said, Lord, you take your power and, Lord, help us be more bold in preaching the gospel. Verse 31 says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember his power? Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with what? With boldness. They were emboldened by the power of God, even if it meant their life. And in Acts chapter 5, guess what? They get arrested again. Well, go figure. And this time they weren't just arrested, they were beaten this time because of their continued testimony and witnessing for Christ. But in verse 41 of Acts chapter 5, it says, Then they left the presence of the council. And look at what is wrong with these boys. They left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Rejoicing? If you get a beating, are you going to be happy about getting your beating? No, we're not. There's nothing wrong with them. They see things differently. 
the power of God has radically changed their lives. And they're willing to live their lives for the sake of the gospel, even if it means personal injury and harm and ultimately death. And we know that because look at the next part in in verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They didn't stop. They kept on, even if it meant continued personal harm, injury, and ultimately death. Are you motivated by the power of God? Are you living your life in faithful obedience to God's will and God's plan according to his word and for the sake of the gospel? I said God's greatest demonstration of power comes in the form of life. And the disciples received the power of God that was made available to them and it motivated them to live their lives for Christ. And they knew that even if they should die, they would be with him forever. And tradition tells us that all but two of the disciples were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ and their continued witness and testimony to him. Now that's motivation for the gospel. How motivated are we for the gospel and things of God. Well, finally this morning, I want us to see that God's power is purposeful. God's power is purposeful. I've talked about power in terms of electricity and we use electricity with a purpose all the time. We walk into a room and we flip a switch and the electricity goes to that light, to that bulb and it comes on and it provides light for us to be able to see, but it's in a measured right amount. If you hook a light bulb up to a, to a current that's too strong, it's going to blow that bulb, maybe even explode that bulb. Okay. It's not going to be healthy to give it too much power. We, we understand using power with a purpose that's controlled and channeled to accomplish a specific thing. I mean, if you see an extension cord laying on the ground with a frayed end, it's generally not good practice to walk up and grab a hold of that frayed end, is it not? <laughs> That's a, a, a unleashed, uncontrolled power in your life is not a pleasant experience. The purpose of your life is to know God, is to love God, and then to live your life in service and devotion to him because that brings God the glory that he deserves. And Jesus tells us that in Luke 24, he says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. God has given you life, physical life, that you might become his child and then live your life so others can know Jesus as well. And when we do that, we bring glory to God. Jesus, right before his march to the cross and his death on Calvary, Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name. Well, how would God be glorified in in the beating and the brutality and the death of Jesus? Because countless millions of people all peoples in the world would have the opportunity to come to God through Jesus' death on the cross. He would be glorified by Jesus' death and the offer of salvation that was made possible. And how do we know that we were created to return to God, to become his children? Because it's in your DNA. Remember Dr. Dawkins earlier say that higher intelligence may have planted life on our planet and it may have left a signature. He talked about that signature of a designer. Well, believe it or not, I think he was right on that. 
And that signature could be called laminin. And you're excited about laminin, aren't you? I can tell you're like, wow, laminin, that's awesome. That's, that's what I was looking for today, it was laminin. I'm gonna go home, I'm gonna talk about laminin to all my friends from the, from the Easter Sunday message today. Well, laminin is a protein molecule, and I heard about it in a video clip from Louis Giglio. And track with me just a minute to kind of explain what this is. And a molecular biologist described it to him in this way. Our cells organize into certain molecular structures, and that, that organization determines what kind of a protein they are in our body. And there's some, as many as maybe 60,000 proteins in our body. We don't even really know how many are there. But these proteins uh, come together, and they determine how the cells group themselves to make our body. I mean, you know we're a group of cells, right? That, you know, tissues and organs and muscles and all this sort of stuff. Well, how do our cells know what they're supposed to be or to do and stay in that form? Well, there is a cell adhesion molecule, an adhesion meaning adhesive, and it's called laminin. And it holds these cells together to determine what their job is going to be in the body. If it's a muscle cell, if it's a tissue cell, an organ cell, you know, blood cell, whatever the case may be. Some have called laminin the rebar of the human body. You know, rebar is that, that, that metal, that steel they put inside concrete to give it a form and a shape and a structure and stability. Laminin is that stuff in our body. It holds our membranes together. It's the glue of the human body. So are you ready to see this laminin? Here is a scientific diagram of the cell adhesion molecule laminin that's holding your body together right now. You recognize that shape? And we may say, well, we can diagram it and make it look like anything. Here is a picture of laminin taken with an electron microscope, an actual picture of laminin in the human body holding us together. The signature of our designer who created and designed you with a purpose. That purpose is for you to know him and to love him and to serve him and then share him with others. And God created you for himself. And at a molecular level in our body, he reminds us of how we come to know him. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. So if you are here today and you have never believed in Jesus, you've heard me say this all morning, that it's believe in Jesus and then receiving into our lives that he died on the cross for our sins. If you have never taken that step of faith today, and it is a step of faith, and I want to invite you in just a few moments to do that, to give your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that when you do, this Holy Spirit we've talked about will come and live within you and you will experience and begin to live in the power of God. And it's important that we do this because I read a statistic this week that said 100% of people are going to die. Now, if you've seen a stat that says otherwise, I'd love to see it, but, but, but we're all going to die. We're going to face physical death. Even Jesus experienced that, but Jesus came that we could experience life after that physical death. He said, even though you die, yet shall you live. And the cross is that bridge from us and our sinfulness into the presence of God as God's children, as we're forgiven and cleansed of our sins. A song we sang earlier said, God is love and God is just. 
That's what the cross and that's what the resurrection demonstrate for us. God's love that he would die in our place. God's justice as he pours out his wrath against sin upon Jesus that we might be forgiven and be given the right to be called children of God. So I want to invite you today to place your faith and your trust in Christ. But maybe you're here and you realize, you know what? I've not been living in the power of God. I've not been been living my life for the sake of the gospel. And God, today, I want to get serious. I want to be serious about living my life for you. So maybe you want to come and just recommit, come to the altar, spend some time in prayer and say, God, help me live my life as the disciples did in faithful obedience to you and to your word. Heard song lyrics this week, and I want to close with this. It says, the very same power that raised Christ from the dead is alive in me. And the very same power that overcame the grave, it lives in me. That power is available to you today if you would receive that gift and then begin to live in the fullness of that power through the gospel and through the power of God's word.